Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. On the second half of today's episode, we'll read paragraphs 683 through 701, and we'll talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit today. So we're making our way through part one, section two of the Catechism, which focuses line by line on the Apostles' Creed. At some point in my mom's life, she started referring to the Holy Spirit as, quote unquote, my buddy. So we... um, pray the family rosary each night, and she would often want to pray the third glorious mystery, the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But she would introduce the third glorious mystery as the descent of my buddy at Pentecost. I think this came from somewhere post-college or shortly after college. She attended a a charismatic conference and just really was struck by the, the power and beauty of the Holy Spirit and had a, a wonderful relationship with him moving forward. So th- this is unique, I think. Um, I think it's hard for a lot of us to imagine or grasp the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Uh, oftentimes, maybe because of art, um, books growing up, uh, the Father is portrayed, the first person of the Trinity, the Father is portrayed as this older man, perhaps a white-bearded man up in heaven looking down upon us. We can picture the second person of the Trinity, thank God, because Jesus Christ literally stepped into our human timeline, took on human flesh, and was made visible to us. So we can picture this Middle Eastern man who lived about 2,000 years ago, uh, the second person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit then is a little bit nebulous, I think, for a lot of people. So he appears throughout scripture under different symbols. He's a dove. He's a flame. He's a column of of cloud. He's breath. He's wind. These images, uh, these symbols used throughout scripture, attempt to help us understand the mystery of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So as we've discussed before, mystery uh, does not mean just closing our eyes and blindly following some nebulous entity with our arms and hands reaching out into the darkness in front of us. What mystery, the word mystery gets at, is that we're, we're talking about, we're trying to understand a reality that is so big, often infinite in this case, the third member of the Holy Trinity, such a big, profound reality that to be understood, to be contemplated, to be searched, to be questioned, to be comprehended takes a lifetime and then after that, eternity. I think I referenced in an earlier episode this great quote by C.S. Lewis who described myth or the use of myth, allegorical language, as uh, a way of writing that reveals a truth that's too big to fit into a fact. So he said myth reveals a truth that's too big to fit into a fact. Uh, We live in this very scientistic age where so many people want things explained to them. We want to understand things according to facts and figures, things that can be measured and weighed. Um, But that's one of many approaches to truth. And sometimes these truths we're trying to comprehend, we're trying to understand, again, are so big, so beautiful, so profound that it's often better to use symbolic language to try to get at this profound reality. 
The symbols used by both sacred scripture and that have been handed on to us through sacred tradition reveal a reality, an entity that's too big, so again, too profound, too awesome, too incredible, to fit into a neat description or into a portrait. The images used throughout scripture and tradition get at the reality. In today's selection from the Catechism, specifically paragraphs 694 through 701, we run through a handful of images used throughout scripture and tradition that get at the reality of the third person of the Trinity, who is the Holy Spirit. The first, so we'll just run through a, f- a few of them. Uh, the first image that's used is one of water. So these images get at this profound reality and help us to understand a little bit more of who or what the Holy Spirit is. Okay, so again, mystery is not um, something just to be blindly followed, and it's as though we shut off our intellect and even our free will and just go with it because it's mystery and God tells us to believe in the mystery. No, the word mystery implies that there's something so big here, it takes a lot to understand and plumb the depths of it. So the first image that's often used throughout scripture and tradition is that of water. So we know that water is cleansing. Um, It leads to new life. So we come into the world through waters. Uh, We come into our faith through the waters of baptism. Water quenches thirst and brings life. Uh, Also recall from Genesis chapter 1 in that first account of creation, scripture says that a mighty wind sweeps over the waters. Um, So we have this imagery of wind and water where the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son is generating life in the world. A second image or symbol that's used is fire. So paragraph 696 speaks of, quote-unquote, the transforming energy of the Holy Spirit's actions. He who transforms what he touches. The catechism then rattles off a few characters throughout Scripture who are also associated with fire, uh, like the Holy Spirit is associated with fire. So we read about Elijah this Old Testament prophet who's described as bringing down fire from heaven. His prayers are described as arising like fire. His word burned like a torch. We also read of John the Baptist, who says that Christ will come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus himself says of the Holy Spirit, I came to cast fire upon the earth and would that it were already kindled. Finally, then the Holy Spirit at Pentecost comes, as Acts of the Apostles says, like tongues as of fire and fills the disciples with himself, with his presence. Uh, Two other images used throughout scripture to get at the reality of the, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, are images of cloud and light. So paragraph 697 of the Catechism rattles off a number of examples very beautifully and succinctly. These two images occur together in the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. In the theophanies, or these appearances of God, of the Old Testament, the cloud, now obscure, now luminous, reveals the living and saving God while veiling the transcendence of his glory. With Moses on Mount Sinai, at the tent of meeting, and during the wandering in the desert, and with Solomon at the dedication of the temple. In the Holy Spirit, Christ fulfills these figures. The Spirit comes upon the Virgin Mary and overshadows her so that she might conceive and give birth to Jesus. 
on the mountain of transfiguration, the spirit in the cloud came and overshadowed Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, Peter, James, and John. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. Finally, the cloud took Jesus out of sight of the disciples on the day of his ascension and will reveal him as son of man in glory on the day of his final coming. Lastly, a symbol that's used throughout scripture, both Old Testament and New, is that of a dove. So at the end of the flood, whose symbolism refers to baptism, okay, this great flood covers the earth, the earth is cleansed of its sin. A dove returns with an olive branch in its beak as a sign that the earth was habitable again. We then fast forward to the New Testament. Christ at his baptism comes up out of the waters and a dove, the Holy Spirit, comes upon him and remains with him. As we too come up out of the waters of baptism, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and remains with us. Sometimes these images seem simplistic. Uh, For me, the dove even seems like a little cutesy. But here are some things they reveal. Uh, Here are some glimpses into the profound infinite mystery of the third person of the Holy Trinity. So those first two images, water and fire, we learn that the Holy Spirit is both a cleansing, purifying presence, as water is, and also a life-giving, invigorating source of light and heat, as fire is. Water and fire are each elements that are simultaneously comforting. So water quenches thirst, heat provides warmth from the cold, They're also potentially devastating. So we think of floods and wildfires, uh, which can powerfully wreak havoc within minutes. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to wreak havoc in a destructive way, unless it's laying waste to sin and even lukewarmness in our lives. But he does, when permitted by us, flood us, us with his graces, wash away the debris, and then set our lives on fire such that we can burn brightly and radiantly. St. Catherine of Siena famously said, be who God meant you to be and you will set the world on fire. So the Holy Spirit is more than a cutesy dove. He's a powerful creative force that unleashes more than we could have dreamed up and accomplished on our own steam. Kind of a random anecdote that pertains to this and has really stuck with me uh, came during one of my classes at Steubenville where we were studying Renaissance art and the professor said, you know, the Holy Spirit must have really been working overtime during the Renaissance. Like, look at this incredible outburst of creativity in painting, in sculpture, in music, in architecture. And I paused for a moment and thought, that's incredible. I never thought of it that way, the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes I think of... um, you know, our faith being distinct from our human history. But the Holy Spirit, like the other members of the Trinity, is at work in and through each and every one of us, guiding human history, leading us, God willing, to our ultimate sanctification and salvation, including these incredible, beautiful periods like the Renaissance. Uh, When we think about the images of cloud and light, we realize that God, the Holy Spirit, both illumines and obscures. So he sheds light, on the teachings of our faith, on the circumstances in our lives, perhaps on the solutions to problems we're facing. But sometimes he purposely obscures. He leads us deeper into the dark and beautiful mystery of life, only to then shine the light on something new and more profound. Lastly, then, the symbol of the dove uh, conjures up a lot of images, a lot of connotations. So doves are white, 
symbolizing purity. Um, we see that this dove comes to, to Noah in the Old Testament as a gentle presence. Um, doves who fly in the sky draw our hearts and minds to the things above. In addition to these images used throughout scripture and tradition to help us understand the reality of the third person, the Trinity, we know from scripture and tradition uh, handed on to us by the magisterium that the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is God. He's equal in divinity with the Father and the Son, and he's consubstantial or made of the same substance or godness as the Father and the Son. Paragraph 685 says, To believe in the Holy Spirit is to profess that the Holy Spirit is one of the persons of the Holy Trinity, consubstantial with the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. For this reason, the divine mystery of the Holy Spirit was already treated in the context of Trinitarian theology. Here, however, we have to do with the Holy Spirit only in the divine economy. So what the catechism is saying here is that at, at this point in the catechism, it's not going to elaborate more on the equality in divinity and consubstantiality uh, with the Father and the Son, but it's going to elaborate the divine economy or what God the Holy Spirit does versus if you go back to the early 200s, uh, especially paragraphs 238 through 267, which we already covered, uh, the Catechism talks more about what and who God the Holy Spirit is. So the theology of the third person of the Trinity is addressed in the early 200s of the Catechism, and the divine economy, what the Holy Spirit does, is addressed here. So what's the takeaway for us? How can we come to know and understand the Holy Spirit more deeply and how can we grow in our relationship with him? First, we can pray to know and understand and visualize him more. Secondly, we can pray to be more deeply in relationship with him. <clears throat> so we can take a fake it till you make it approach. Holy Spirit, I don't completely understand you. It's hard to visualize you, but I love you. I trust that you love me. Please help me to grow in my relationship with you. I've referred to a, a priest friend who would often say, if you're questioning or struggling with a certain aspect of the faith, just put it into practice and see how it works out for you. So pray for deeper understanding, a deeper relationship with the Holy Spirit, and proceed forth as though you are in relationship with him, because you are. Uh, even though we have a hard time, might have a hard time understanding him, God who loves us infinitely is already in relationship with us. I took this approach again when I first went to Steubenville and I encountered a lot of classmates who had this wonderful relationship with the Blessed Mother. Um, growing up, we talked a lot about Jesus, about God, and at some point in my parents' uh, marriage, they experienced a deeper conversion to the Catholic faith through this pilgrimage site uh, in Medjugorje, a place where the Blessed Mother hasn't been appearing since 1981. Um, but as a child and then as a young adult, I had some understanding of Mary, but I wouldn't say I had a, a profound relationship with her. So I come to Steubenville, I see other people, um, you know, talking about Mary as though she's their homegirl. And so I started to pray, Mary, please help me to know you more, understand you more, and have a more profound relationship with you. Well, I think I was paid one of the, the highest compliments of my life when my best friend Teresa said she sat down to pray one time and said, 
um, hey, blessed mother, it's Teresa, Becca's friend. I was like, yes, I have arrived. If you think of me as the blessed mother's friend. So God offers this relationship to each and every one of us. And again, we are already in relationship with him in in virtue of our baptism. But for our, our human minds to wrap themselves around this reality, we can pray, Lord, help me to understand my relationship with you. Help me to visualize you, picture you, the third member of the Trinity, and draw closer and closer to you. We'll close this first half of the episode by praying the Come Holy Spirit prayer. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. I also like to pray each day that I will be docile to Mary's spouse, the Holy Spirit. And then I pray, Holy Spirit, please help me to be sensitive and obedient to your every prompting, whispering, and movement of the day. So any little intuition or or thought that you might be using to prompt me down the path you have laid before me, please help me to be sensitive and obedient to that. We'll now take a brief break, and then after the break, we'll return to read paragraphs 683 through 701. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 683 through 701. Chapter 3, I Believe in the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This knowledge of faith is possible only in the Holy Spirit, to be in touch with Christ. We must first have been touched by the Holy Spirit. He comes to meet us and kindles faith in us. By virtue of our baptism, the first sacrament of the faith, the Holy Spirit in the Church communicates to us, intimately and personally, the life that originates in the Father and is offered to us in the Son. Baptism gives us the grace of new birth in God the Father, through His Son, in the Holy Spirit. For those who bear God's Spirit are led to the Word, that is, to the Son, and the Son presents them to the Father, and the Father confers incorruptibility on them. And it is impossible to see God's Son without the Spirit, and no one can approach the Father without the Son. For the knowledge of the Father is the Son, and the knowledge of God's Son is obtained through the Holy Spirit. Through his grace, the Holy Spirit is the first to awaken faith in us and to communicate to us the new life, which is to know the Father and the one whom he has sent, Jesus Christ. But the Spirit is the last of the persons of the Holy Trinity to be revealed. St. Gregory of Nazianzus, the theologian, explains this progression in terms of the pedagogy of divine condescension. The Old Testament proclaimed the Father clearly, but the Son more obscurely. The New Testament revealed the Son and gave us a glimpse of the divinity of the Spirit. Now the Spirit dwells among us and grants us a clearer vision of Himself. It was not prudent when the divinity of the Father had not yet been confessed to proclaim the Son openly, and when the divinity of the Son was not yet admitted to add the Holy Spirit as an extra burden, to speak somewhat daringly. By advancing and progressing from glory to glory, the light of the Trinity will shine in ever more brilliant rays." 
To believe in the Holy Spirit is to profess that the Holy Spirit is one of the persons of the Holy Trinity, consubstantial with the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. For this reason, the divine mystery of the Holy Spirit was already treated in the context of Trinitarian theology. Here, however, we have to do with the Holy Spirit only in the divine economy. The Holy Spirit is at work with the Father and the Son from the beginning to the completion of the plan for our salvation. But in these end times, ushered in by the Son's redeeming incarnation, the Spirit is revealed and given, recognized and welcomed as a person. Now can this divine plan accomplished in Christ, the firstborn and head of the new creation, be embodied in mankind by the outpouring of the Spirit. As the Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Article 8. I Believe in the Holy Spirit. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now God's Spirit, who reveals God, makes known to us Christ his word, his living utterance. But the Spirit does not speak of himself. The Spirit, who has spoken through the prophets, makes us hear the Father's word, but we do not hear the Spirit himself. We know him only in the movement by which he reveals the word to us and disposes us to welcome him in faith. The Spirit of truth who unveils Christ to us will not speak on his own. Such properly divine self-effacement explains why the world cannot receive him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, while those who believe in Christ know the Spirit because he dwells with them. The Church, a communion living in the faith of the apostles which she transmits, is the place where we know the Holy Spirit. In the scriptures he inspired, in the tradition to which the church fathers are always timely witnesses, in the church's magisterium, which he assists, in the sacramental liturgy, through its words and symbols, in which the Holy Spirit puts us into communion with Christ, in prayer, wherein he intercedes for us, in the charisms and ministries by which the church is built up, in the signs of apostolic and missionary life, in the witness of saints through whom he manifests his holiness and continues the work of salvation. The joint mission of the Son and the Spirit. The one whom the Father has sent into our hearts, the Spirit of his Son, is truly God. Consubstantial with the Father and the Son, the Spirit is inseparable from them, in both the inner life of the Trinity and his gift of love for the world. In adoring the Holy Trinity, life-giving, consubstantial, and indivisible, the Church's faith also professes the distinction of persons. When the Father sends his word, he always sends his breath. In their joint mission, the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct but inseparable. To be sure, it is Christ who is seen, the visible image of the invisible God, but it is the Spirit who reveals him. Jesus is Christ, anointed because the Spirit is his anointing, and everything that occurs from the Incarnation on derives from this fullness. When Christ is finally glorified, he can in turn send the Spirit from his place with the Father to those who believe in him. He communicates to them his glory. That is the Holy Spirit who glorifies him. From that time on, this joint mission will be manifested in the children adopted by the Father in the body of his Son. The mission of the Spirit of adoption is to unite them to Christ and make them live in him. The notion of anointing suggests that there is no distance between the Son and the Spirit. Indeed, just as between the surface of the body and the anointing with oil, Neither reason nor sensation recognizes any intermediary. So the contact of the Son with the Spirit is immediate, so that anyone who would make contact with the Son by faith 
must first encounter the oil by contact. In fact, there is no part that is not covered by the Holy Spirit. That is why the confession of the Son's Lordship is made in the Holy Spirit by those who receive Him, the Spirit coming from all sides to those who approach the Son in faith. The Name, Titles, and Symbols of the Holy Spirit The Proper Name of the Holy Spirit Holy Spirit is the proper name of the one whom we adore and glorify with the Father and the Son. The Church has received this name from the Lord and professes it in the baptism of her new children. The term spirit translates the Hebrew word ruah, which in its primary sense means breath, air, wind. Jesus indeed uses the sensory image of the wind to suggest to Nicodemus the transcendent newness of him who is personally God's breath, the divine spirit. On the other hand, spirit and holy are divine attributes common to the three divine persons. By joining the two terms, scripture, liturgy, and theological language, designate the inexpressible person of the Holy Spirit without any possible equivocation with other uses of the terms spirit and holy. Titles of the Holy Spirit When he proclaims and promises the coming of the Holy Spirit, Jesus calls him the paraclete, literally he who is called to one side, advocatus. Paraclete is commonly translated by consoler, and Jesus is the first consoler. The Lord also called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth. Besides the proper name of Holy Spirit, which is most frequently used in the Acts of the Apostles and in the Epistles, we also find in St. Paul the titles, the Spirit of the Promise, the Spirit of Adoption, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Lord, and the Spirit of God, and in St. Peter, the Spirit of Glory. Symbols of the Holy Spirit. Water. The symbolism of water signifies the Holy Spirit's action in baptism. Since after the invocation of the Holy Spirit, it becomes the efficacious sacramental sign of new birth. Just as the gestation of our first birth took place in water, so the water of baptism truly signifies that our birth into the divine life is given to us in the Holy Spirit. As by one Spirit we were all baptized, so we are also made to drink of one Spirit. Thus the Spirit is also personally the living water welling up from Christ crucified at its source, and welling up in us to eternal life. Anointing. The symbolism of anointing with oil also signifies the Holy Spirit, to the point of becoming a synonym for the Holy Spirit. In Christian initiation, anointing is the sacramental sign of confirmation called chrismation in the churches of the East. Its full force can be grasped only in relation to the primary anointing accomplished by the Holy Spirit, that of Jesus. Christ, in Hebrew Messiah, means the one anointed by God's Spirit, there were, se there were several anointed ones of the Lord in the Old Covenant, preeminently King David. But Jesus is God's anointed in a unique way. The humanity the Son assumed was entirely anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit established him as Christ. The Virgin Mary conceived Christ by the Holy Spirit, who, through the angel, proclaimed him the Christ at his birth, and prompted Simeon to come to the temple to see the Christ of the Lord. The Spirit filled Christ, and the power of the Spirit went out from him in his acts of healing and of saving. Finally, it was the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Now fully established as Christ in his humanity, victorious over death, Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit abundantly until the saints constitute, in their union with the humanity of the Son of God, that perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, the whole Christ, in St. Augustine's expression. Fire. 
While water signifies birth and the fruitfulness of life given in the Holy Spirit, fire symbolizes the transforming energy of the Holy Spirit's actions. The prayer of the prophet Elijah, who arose like fire and whose word burned like a torch, brought down fire from heaven on the sacrifice on Mount Carmel. This event was a figure of the fire of the Holy Spirit, who transforms what he touches. John the Baptist, who goes before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, proclaims Christ as the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus will say of the Spirit, I came to cast fire upon the earth, and would that it were already kindled. In the form of tongues, as of fire, the Holy Spirit rests on the disciples on the morning of Pentecost and fills them with himself. The spiritual tradition has retained the symbolism of fire as one of the most expressive images of the Holy Spirit's actions. Do not quench the Spirit. Cloud and light. These two images occur together in the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. In the Theophanies of the Old Testament, the cloud, now obscure, now luminous, reveals the living and saving God, while veiling the transcendence of his glory, with Moses on Mount Sinai at the tent of meeting, and during the wandering in the desert, and with Solomon at the dedication of the temple. In the Holy Spirit, Christ fulfills these figures. The Spirit comes upon the Virgin Mary and overshadows her, so that she might conceive and give birth to Jesus. On the mountain of transfiguration, the Spirit in the cloud came and overshadowed Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, Peter, James, and John, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen. Listen to him. Finally, the cloud took Jesus out of the sight of the disciples on the day of his ascension and will reveal him as Son of Man in glory on the day of his final coming. The seal is a symbol close to that of anointing. The Father has set his seal on Christ and also seals us in him. Because this seal indicates the indelible effect of the anointing with the Holy Spirit in the sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and holy orders, the image of the seal has been used in some theological traditions to express the indelible character imprinted by these three unrepeatable sacraments. The Hand Jesus heals the sick and blesses little children by laying hands on them. In his name, the apostles will do the same. Even more pointedly, it is by the apostles' imposition of hands that the Holy Spirit is given. The letter to the Hebrews lists the imposition of hands among the fundamental elements of its teaching. The church has kept the sign of the all-powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit in its sacramental epicleses. The finger. It is by the finger of God that Jesus cast out demons. If God's law was written on tablets of stone by the finger of God, then the letter from Christ entrusted to the care of the apostles is written with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The hymn, Veni Creator Spiritus, invokes the Holy Spirit as the finger of the Father's right hand. The dove. At the end of the flood, whose symbolism refers to baptism— a dove released by Noah returns with a fresh olive tree branch in its beak as a sign that the earth was again habitable. When Christ comes up from the water of his baptism, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes down upon him and remains with him. The Spirit comes down and remains in the purified hearts of the baptized. In certain churches, the Eucharist is reserved in a metal receptacle in the form of a dove suspended above the altar. Christian iconography traditionally uses a dove to suggest the spirit. This brings us to the end of our reading selection for the week, the end of our episode for the week. Thanks so much for joining me. Between now and next week's episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast, and I'll be praying for you. Please pray for me. 
In the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.